Industry groups are urging the Biden administration to take it slow on a major software transparency and security initiative. Now the Commerce Department is under orders to define software bills of material. But contractors are wary of the potential implications for the new acquisition rules. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more details. And I guess, Justin, we should begin with SBOM, Software Bill of Materials, part of that cybersecurity executive order that came out a couple weeks ago. What exactly is an SBOM? The federal government defines SBOM essentially as a list of components that make up software or a software product. Now, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration has been leading work to define SBOMs for the past two years. They've been running proof of concepts with medical device manufacturers, the energy sector, the automotive sector, and they've just been doing a lot of work to define what should be included in that list of materials for software. Alan Friedman is the director of cybersecurity initiatives at NTIA. He spoke at an event hosted by the R Street Institute last week, and he says one admittedly imperfect analogy for SBOMs is that they're akin to the ingredients listed on the back of food packaging. It's assembled out of different pieces in different layers, often open source, and many of these components are out of date, like an ingredients list. They could be rotten or stale or, in the case of cybersecurity, actively compromised. And so software bills of material, or SBOMs, are the first step towards having greater transparency into our supply chain. It's certainly true there's lots of rotten, stinky software going around <laughs> since there's been software. But, Justin, how do SBOMs factor into that executive order on cybersecurity? SBOMs are among a list of many practices that the government is considering to help shore up the software supply chain under the executive order. It directs NTIA to publish a minimum elements for an SBOM by July 11th. Some of the minimum elements that NTIA is considering for an SBOM include the software supplier name, the component name of the specific software, the version of that component, other unique identifiers, and then, of course, the dependency relationship, how is one piece of software dependent on the other. So those are some of the things that NTIA has put out there so far. And what does industry say about all of this? Well, the NTIA has received more than 80 comments from a range of organizations on SBOM specifically, including many industry groups and companies who are offering a range of advice on those minimum elements and specific technical factors. But one trend we're seeing already is that they're asking NTIA and the broader federal government to go slow on this executive order and specifically on SBOM. Both the Chamber of Commerce and the National Defense Industrial Association were among those groups that said, if you rush this, this could lead to bad outcomes. And you typically hear that, obviously, from industry on these big cybersecurity, supply chain security regulation efforts. Uh, it brings to mind the Huawei rules of the, pre of the past couple of years and how they really asked the federal government to take a deliberate approach with that. Yes. Well, the problem with SBOM is a couple of questions. We don't know to the extent that industry customers of software vendors ask for SBOMs. Is there a body of best practices around that? In a few minutes, we're going to hear from the 
Linux Foundation, and they have long experience with SBOMs and some standards they've published, and we'll hear from them after this interview. But also, SBOMs are an electronic artifact. It's not like a piece of paper you get, like a food label that you can read. So you need tools, I think, to handle the SBOMs. So I guess the question then becomes, should the government be given more time to get good with all of this, and should the suppliers be given more time to to figure out how they're going to deliver S-bombs to the government. Well, you asked about a body of best practices, and NTIA actually has been leading that work over the last couple of years, working with the Linux Foundation and some others, and this is all a matter of public record. But, of course, now we're shifting from this kind of voluntary, multi-stakeholder approach that NTIA has been leading today, and they're still leading that, but the Biden executive order really shifts this to a conversation about potential requirements and acquisition regulations. And that's where you're seeing that reaction from industry is, if this is going to be a requirement, we need to understand exactly how this is going to work. That's right. Because if there is a to be an addition to the FAR, that would require, I'm pretty sure, some rulemaking by the FAR Council. And rulemaking takes time, and there's times to comment and so forth. So before anything could get baked into the federal acquisition regulation, there would be time there. What else do we need to know here? Well, as you mentioned, there's potential rulemaking coming. There's a lot of questions about exactly what people should expect as far as timeline on the cyber executive order. No one really has a good answer, but we're expecting in the coming months for the administration to start floating potential standards uh, and practices like SBOM and leading to potential regulations and and uh, acquisition rules da- down the road. Now, for SBOM specifically, the, the July 11th publication that NTI is putting out there is just a definition. It's not a requirement. So that's going to be kind of an initial pass at what a future requirement could be. And the EO, as I said, does lay out an aggressive timeline for coming up with software security standards. Here's Alan Friedman from NTIA again. One of the challenges that we sometimes see is the community playing for time and saying, well, let's spend our time arguing over some of the minutiae here and here. And I think just looking at the, the, the timelines that have been laid out in the EO, I think there's going to be less tolerance for that today. And so as, as the community starts to say, how are we going to mobilize and respond? I think that strategy will probably not be as effective. So you heard it there. Industry is going to press for time, but they're not necessarily going to have as much time as they might like to prepare for this. Another interesting aside on this SBOM is that it's gotten so much attention, even a congressman is submitting comments to NTIA. Representative Jim Langevin from Rhode Island, a cybersecurity leader in Congress, submitted comments on the SBOM and said that NTIA should implement or put out the definition as quickly as possible. So there's kind of this demand or need for speed here. And I love the headlines we could write. The Biden administration drops the S-bomb. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. 
He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. 
So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet 
and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.